Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We continue our regular reading tonight in this Gospel, and we come to a short passage that follows the event of the Lord taking three disciples up upon the mount where he was transfigured before them, and there was Moses and Elijah talking with our Lord. In our reading tonight, our Lord and the three come down from the mountain, and there's a brief conversation about Elijah and the ministry of Elijah, verse 9 through 13. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask for your help. Now, upon the occasion of the word being publicly read, as is your will, for Paul tells Timothy, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And upon the occasion of your word being preached, as is your will, for the apostle also says, preach the word in season and out. Father, upon every confidence that what we are now doing is your will, we ask for your help. Lord, we confess our helplessness apart from you. We cannot hear unless you give us ears to hear. We cannot believe unless you give us faith to believe. We cannot reform unless you, by your Spirit, reform us. Lord, we pray that these things would be ours in Jesus Christ. And by, by his merits, we ask, Lord, that you would give these things to us. Help us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 17, verse 9. This is the word of God. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's word. <clears throat> our, our disciples ask our Lord a question that comes out of their confusion. You see that question there in verse 10. Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They have just seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with our Lord and talking with Moses. The scribes have been teaching for years that Elijah is to come before the kingdom of Messiah is established. Now the disciples have just been commanded not to speak about having seen Elijah. In effect, their question in verse 10 is, Jesus, how can you tell us to be quiet about what we have just seen, if the scribes say Elijah is supposed to come to Israel and prepare all of Israel 
for Messiah's kingdom. If Elijah has just come, as we have just seen, and we are supposed to be quiet, how does the teaching of the scribes make any sense with your command that we be quiet? Well, it is certainly true that the scribes did teach that Elijah was coming. They taught that Elijah was going to return to the earth in his very own body, the very same body that he was once upon the earth in, and that he would have a ministry upon this return in Israel right before Messiah established his kingdom. That's what the scribes taught. Elijah's unusual departure from from this earthly life played very much into this idea of the scribes, that he would be coming back in the very same body that he once had on the earth. How did he depart from this world, Elijah? In 2 Kings 2.11, we read, As he and Elisha went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah, like Enoch, did not have to suffer a slow, debilitating mortal death. Both men were just taken off the earth. That's how Elijah departed. The Jews thought Elijah would come back in a similar way as he left. Now, what the scribes taught about Elijah, we need to understand, was largely a superstition and not actually biblical. It was largely a superstition. We could even call it a whole lot of fleshy religious fancy. The people liked the idea, the scribes liked the idea of something supernatural happening, and they liked anticipating the supernatural return of Elijah but they really didn't want to undergo the change of heart and the change of life that Elijah was supposed to bring in preparing the way for Messiah. The way the scribes held on to this anticipated return of Elijah and the way they had twisted it from the Old Testament prophecy, which we'll get to in a minute, it was really held on to as mere superstition. And we see, this, we see this in a lot of people who appear to have a fascination with miracles, or they have a fascination with angels, or they have a fascination with visions, and they find movies and TV channels that tickle this fascination they have with the supernatural. It's a fleshy, fanciful hold they have on religion. They are fascinated by strange things happening But they are very, very disinterested in repentance and obedience and the confessing of Christ before men. This is all over the West, and it is all over Africa. Fleshy, fanciful religion. The people that I'm speaking of, they appear to have a hold on religion, but it is only a hold on a kind of religion. It's the kind of voyeuristic religion where they get to talk about strange things, but they never rend their garments 
and enter upon personal reform under the word of God. Now, I haven't told you yet what the Old Testament prophecy is concerning Elijah, but now I must. In this superstitious view of Elijah's return that the scribes taught, there was a very large grain of truth to it. The prophets did say Elijah would be coming. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 read this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now you've just heard the last two verses of the Old Testament. The last word of the Old Testament before a long silence is about the ministry of Elijah coming back among Israel and exactly what that ministry would be about. A preparation of the people. And when that preparation took a true root in the heart of a man, he would be turned to his own kin and they would have unity in the righteousness of God and in the promise of God's redeeming son. Now that Old Testament prophecy is picked up by the mouth of an angel who has come to speak with a father named Zechariah who is about to have a son named John. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Now we know who is Elijah, who carries into the world, into the land of Israel, the ministry of Elijah. It is Zechariah's son, John the Baptist. So look at our Lord's answer to the question. The question is in verse 10. The answer is in verse 11. He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. Now, the way the Lord answers this, it sounds like he's saying it is still in prospect, that it is still out in the future. He is answering their question from the perspective of Malachi. The Lord is upholding the prophecy of Malachi. But in the immediately next verse, he says, but by the way, he has come. This is over. 
But let's stay on verse 11 for a minute because it is quite important. Our Lord Jesus affirms in his answer that the scribes were right in an expectation of Elijah, but they were wrong in thinking he had not come already. They were wrong in thinking that the Elijah who took off the, was taken off the earth in the whirlwind would be the one who is coming back. No, it's the ministry of Elijah that's coming, not the very same man. Elijah had already come in John the Baptist. In John, the spirit and power of Elijah had returned to do what? It's in verse 11. To restore all things. Now, what that simple word restore means is to put things back in their right condition. Matthew 12, 13, we came across this word earlier. Our Lord is healing the crippled hand of a man on the Sabbath. Stretch out your hand, he said to the man. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored. Same word. Healthy, like the other, the text says. Brought back to its right condition. So when Elijah is appointed to appear again, the spirit and power of Elijah is appointed to appear again in the life of John the Baptist, he is coming to put things back in the right condition in Israel. And what does that mean then? Repentance towards God and faith in Christ. Repentance towards God and faith in the Redeemer. If you really wanted to do the homework, you could go and read one of John's best sermons in Luke chapter 3, where what he talks about in his public preaching ministry is repentance and faith. In Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there are the two heads of the restorative ministry of John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and look the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Believe upon the Savior who is here to be an offering. That's what lambs are, an offering for sinners so that their debts with God do not follow them to the judgment. That is the work of restoration. Putting Israel back in its right condition is an Israel that is resisting the devil in their own moral life and hoping in the promised redeemer in their confession and their praise and their worship. In Luke 3, the same text I've referred to now a couple times, verse 17, John the Baptist says this, of the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And you're like, come on, pastor, That's, that doesn't sound like good news. A winnowing fork in his hand, clearing the threshing floor, unquenchable fire, that is good news. You know why? It's a testimony that now and finally, on the earth, 
has come the one that all men have been looking for, the one who will bring an end to the dominion of sin, who will break its power over his people and remove its penalty from them. Christ comes to deliver us from sin's penalty and sin's dominion. He forgives unto fruitfulness. This is a really important little passage for this reason, 17, 9 through 13. It's a reminder to us of exactly what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is. We live in times where speech about Jesus is very often relegated to one silo. And that silo is all about the forgiveness of sin. And there is no other silo on the farm. But we are learning in our little text tonight by the ministry of Elijah, which is John the Baptist and the spirit and power of Elijah, is that there is a silo of fruitfulness on this farm and a silo of forgiveness. Christ has come to forgive the sins of his people so that they might now also walk uprightly in the righteousness and fruitfulness of his own very life. That is why John the Baptist came. He came to testify to the nation what kind of Messiah was coming. Yes, a lamb who would take away the sins of the world. That is foundational. That is square one. But also, a farmer with a winnowing fork, clearing the threshing floor because he intends to come and take up wheat. Wheat is fruit, right? Chaff is not. Which child wakes up on Saturday morning and says, can I have a big bowl of chaff? Can you put skim milk on it? Mmm. Chaff is to be trashed. But wheat is the fruit. The ministry of Elijah and John was taking on an entire nation who had become deeply ignorant and dull about the nature of Messiah's kingdom. It went well for the elect. It did not go so well for most of Israel. Look at verse 12 then. Our Lord continues to speak to his disciples. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Here's what happens when an entire people of God and the visible church of God are ruled by a superstitious, fleshy, fanciful religion where they like supernatural promises and supernatural stories, where they like to think of themselves as special. We are the children of Abraham. Do you remember what John the Baptist said to that? He said, don't you dare say that to me. For the Lord can raise up children of Abraham from stones. 
It is no saving grace that you are ethnic descendants of Abraham, is John the Baptist's point in Luke 3. What happens to a people who have this fleshy, fanciful religion? They kill the prophets and kill the Christ. This is the end of a superstitious hold on religion that believes in angels, enjoys miracles, but does not want to touch repentance and a confession of Christ. In Matthew 11, our Lord had already told his disciples what dawns upon them apparently more clearly in verse 13. Matthew 11, verse 13, Jesus said to a crowd, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know why many didn't have ears to hear that? There's no way this John the Baptist is rightly speaking of the kingdom of Messiah. There's no way the kingdom's like what John the Baptist says it is. No way. They were dull. They were blind. They were ignorant. They couldn't hear. Right after that, same chapter, Matthew 11, next verse, our Lord describes in detail a people who have a fleshy, fanciful hold upon religion. Listen to what he says. He has just told them, John is Elijah who is to come. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Matthew eleven sixteen through 19. These are the people who didn't have ears to hear that John was bringing the ministry of Elijah, who didn't have ears to hear that the Messiah who was coming upon the heels of John's ministry was a Messiah who was going to die for their sins and break the dominion of sin in their lives. So what is our lesson? Three points here, and they are all briefly stated. The three lessons to take home from this little passage is that the kingdom of God comes to the people of God by way of a strong disruption. A strong disruption of the way we have been living. This is the ministry of the law and the gospel. This is the ministry of Elijah. The kingdom of God comes with a strong disruption. It says you are going the wrong way. You are thinking about your life in the wrong way. I dare you to read Luke 3. John says, repent, bear the fruits, keeping with repentance. Stop complaining about your wages, he says. Stop stealing and skimming off the prophets, he says. He gets right down into their lives and reveals that the way they are living will not work 
in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They must repent and believe. Lesson two, the kingdom of God comes to carry us to the king's cross. And so our Lord, though he had just been transfigured in glory, he didn't step into the cloud and disappear from the earth. Remember that beautiful, glorious cloud from which the Father spoke? There's Moses, there's Elijah, and now the Father is speaking from the glory cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus doesn't jump up into the cloud and disappear. He stays upon the earth. The transfiguration is over. And he comes down the mountain. Do you know why? He tells them, I am going to the cross. I am the Lamb of God. I have come to take away the sin debt of my people. And the kingdom of God, lastly, the third lesson, the kingdom of God comes to carry us into its fruitfulness. We cannot separate this from the ministry of John the Baptist. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance is the ministry of Elijah in the church. Of course, this was a once-for-all ministry that John the Baptist had to shake Israel, to shake them so that the elect would hear what king is coming and what he looks like and what he will do. But even though this was a one-time event, this ministry of Elijah, it stands until the end of this age for the church's remembrance of what the kingdom of our Christ really is about. It's about the forgiveness of sins and the fruitfulness of the forgiven. We are to bear the fruits of a new creation. We are united to the life of a risen Savior. His cross forgives our sins. His risen life seeds our fruitfulness again and again. This is the lesson. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the ministry of Elijah. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus Christ. For it is his ministry that has broken sin's dominion in us. And it is his ministry that has settled our debt and penalty because of sin. We praise you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.